At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here, and I have the privilege of interviewing Mitch Chase about his book, 40 Questions about typology and allegory. So, Mitch, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on to discuss this, man. I, uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a pastor locally here uh, for nine years at Cosmosdale Baptist Church. I teach part-time for Boyce College and Southern Seminary, and uh, my wife Stacy and I have four boys, uh, so our life is in Louisville. And uh, it's our joy to be able to, to work in church ministry and uh, to be connected to these schools that we love. Um, and uh, we've been married for 16 years this summer. I've, uh, I've written this, uh, this book that you, you've so graciously invited me to talk about. Uh, and as a preacher and, and as a teacher, I am very thrilled by the subject of biblical theology. And I have found it to be very dear to my own heart and very very um, instrumental in the lives of uh, students and uh, congregants. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to be with you to talk about it. Well, thank you for, for coming on. And we're just going to go ahead and get started. I mean, the book has 40 questions and you provide answers for it. So we, we will not <laughs> ask all 40 questions. And, and I encourage our listeners to go go buy the book and read it and you'll find more detail, but this will give them a little bit of a taste of what they'll find. So to start off, um, how did you come to write this book um, on this subject and, and to whom did you mainly write it? Yeah. So trying to find a, 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 a venue to talk about and write about typology was, uh, was something that I'd wanted to do for several years. And the 40 question series is a great series covering so many different topics. And I noticed that there wasn't anything quite like this subject addressed by a book. And so I began interacting with the general editor of the series back in 2018 for um, a possible contract with Kriegel. And uh, after securing that in the early part of that year, I spent the next year writing the book. And uh, so in in the early spring of 20, 2019, everything was submitted, and then it just went through the regular process of uh, you know hurry up and wait. Got to got to get everything um, through the the publishing hoops as as uh, all of the different processes on their end come to pass. And um, I I was really thrilled though for for Kriegel to take up this topic. Uh, typology and allegory are controversial su- subjects. And I know that I may not persuade every reader of this book, and that is fine. But I was I was interested in seeing if we could contribute something to the discussion on these subjects. Uh, they're very rooted historically, and um, I think that modern day preachers engage in this kind of uh, preaching and application all the time using these reading strategies. And and so writing this book, um, it was really a a way of trying to address 
students and and thoughtful lay readers or preachers that want to understand more of Christ in the Old Testament, or at least to to get their feet wet in the discussions. So I'm hoping that people who don't come at it from my perspective will read the book and think through the arguments that I presented. Uh, I'm also hoping that people who are very open-minded on the subjects and um, have really tried to think through how typological or allegorical reading can impact Christians, that they will see uh, the edifying way these strategies can operate in our lives. I'm really hoping to encourage preachers, and uh, I would love for all of our preaching to be strengthened uh, by trying to to see the Bible with a lens of reading in this way. So, you know, those I know that's not like one audience I have in mind because um, I, I named a few that I'm hoping will benefit. But, you know, that's the truth. I, I really want um, students in a classroom uh, to be able to think through this, this subject. Uh, so I'm hoping that it will receive a wide readership. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, when we approach Scripture, either typologically or allegorically, what are some presuppositions that we have as we approach the text or assumptions? That is such an important question because everything rests on assumptions. We we have a hermeneutical reading strategy uh, that's resting on presuppositions no matter where we're coming from. And typological allegorical reading doesn't make sense with just any any group of, of presuppositions. Uh, so, so to think about your question, I can throw out a few examples of presuppositions that would have to be in place. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the unity of Scripture. If, if we're thinking about typological or allegorical reading, we're trying to read with the whole canon in view. But if this is merely a compilation of man-made documents, there's no divine inspiration here. There's no, there's no um, redemptive story. Then typological reading is just an imaginative, subjective enterprise no one should be compelled to follow it. You have really no authority as a reader to offer anything. Um, it's just what you happen to see in the text, and, and nobody else has to, has to see that either. And, and so I think that a key presupposition of the unity of Scripture is, is foundational to these reading strategies. If you, if you don't see two testaments that are together unfolding the plan of God across the ages— culminating in Christ, then uh, typological reading doesn't make any sense. But if we have a united canon of 66 books, if the Old and New Testaments are both preparing and announcing the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ, then we can see how types are like John the Baptist. Uh, They prepare the way for the Lord. There are patterns and correspondences in the Old Testament that when seen in light of Christ are um, Christological patterns, Christological types. And, and I think it goes to confirm the unity of the Testaments. Without that, it just crumbles. Um, I also think uh, an assumption that we want to make for typological reading is that the biblical authors are giving us a hermeneutic to follow. And we will find even in the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament, that there are patterns and events that become foreshadowing. A huge one, of course, is the Exodus, uh, but also the the very ominous 
a wilderness generation that becomes an example to avoid. Uh, these, these types or patterns are taken up not just within the Old Testament, they're renewed and escalated in the New Testament. Um, and therefore, when we, when, we, um, when we read types as interpreters, we want to be sensitive to how these are developing across the Old and New Testaments, inspired of God, uh, for our edification and um, promise fulfillment paradigms that that are integrally connected to typological allegorical reading, and uh, so I think as as Bible readers we want to come at it with assumptions like these. There there are no doubt other ones, but if you um, if you start removing things like um, like these presuppositions, the whole enterprise crumbles. It's like the legs of a stool. You can't start kicking out one leg after another and that stool remain standing or helping anybody sit. It's just going to crash. And um, if you if you read folks over the years who who have a very low view of Scripture and uh, they're not convinced of divine inspiration, they're not convinced of a united canon. Um, there's it's not a shock as a reader if you see them being very critical of things like typological reading. Um, their their presuppositions about scripture have have sort of settled that issue ahead of time, you know. Yeah. Um, to move our discussion along, as your book's about both typology and allegory, I, I think it's helpful to start off with some basic definitions. So to start us yeah. off on that trajectory, what is typology? What do we mean when we say that? Yeah. So the way I would define typology to start with a a definition that's concise that you will see very much in uh, standard definitions or explanations of the term is that it's a, a person or an institution or an event that is forward looking to some sort of escalated antitype. And type and antitype are the ways to relate what comes earlier and what comes later. And my book focuses um, on Christological types and what I'm wanting to convince the reader of is that earlier scripture uh, has people and events and institutions that are forward looking to the person and work of Jesus. Um, I, so I've expanded the definition a little bit. I've, I've wanted to uh, provide for the reader a fuller sense of looking at things, uh, looking at offices, um, also events and people, uh, but also places the Old Testament provides a myriad of these things that are forward-looking to the person and work of Christ. And, um, and so when we think about a type, we should have the two key components of some correspondences. There's no set number of them to reach, but correspondences between earlier and later things, as well as escalation. I'm not just trying to draw a parallel or an analogy with something earlier and later. I'm trying to say that there is an escalation into the person and work of Christ that makes something a type designed by the Lord to be read in light of his son. Um, this, this uh, I think we're taking the cues from the biblical authors. This was a presupposition I mentioned a moment ago that the biblical authors are giving us the, the hermeneutic themselves by reading events and institutions in light of God's redemptive plan. The New Testament explodes with this. And um, more than one writer on the subject of typology has said that typological reading is the primary way the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. Now, even if someone thinks that's an overstatement, 
let's at least grant that someone being willing to make that even to even to any degree it's to say typological reading is relevant it's important and maybe even the primary way the new testament writers read the old i'm very sympathetic with that claim uh, so therefore, we need to not only know what typology is um, in order to see patterns that have correspondence and escalation with later things or, or events, or in this case, Christ, um, we, need, we need to see that the biblical authors are making this case with how they understand the Old Testament in light of the Son. That should delight us because as Bible readers, we are, we're wanting to approach all of Scripture as Christians. And if the New Testament authors read the Old Testament so frequently in a typological way, then, then that, should, that should seal for us the importance of this issue for us to grapple with. We need to, we need to plunge into it and think through it. Yes, I, I completely agree. And, and one thing I, I really enjoyed about your book as I read through it in both sections on allegory and, and typology, you give several examples running throughout the canon of Scripture. But for an audience, can you give them somewhat of a taste? What yeah. are some examples of some types? Yeah. So um, I, think that, I think that some of the easiest places to locate typological interpretation for, for Christ's person and work is to start with something like the Passover. The Passover event connected to the Exodus was something of great importance in the Old Testament, the greatest deliverance they had experienced out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And, and this particular victory was taken up into the Psalms and the prophets to build confidence in God not just for what he has done, but confidence for what he would do uh, as, as the people could hope for a new exodus and future deliverances of the Lord who, who with his mighty hand and outstretched arm brought the people out. And in the New Testament, the Gospels portray Jesus's ministry, his teachings, his claims with such a strong exodus backdrop. He, he becomes our Passover lamb on the week of his death dying on Passover as the lambs are slaughtered in the temple. And Jesus on the cross is our sacrifice. And his blood becomes that covering that is a refuge for sinners and judgment passes over us. First Corinthians 5 uh, is where Paul tells us Jesus is our Passover sacrifice and uh, that he has been offered in our place. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 5, is he's reading the Old Testament pattern and event, as important as it was, in light of Christ now, to where the event of Christ is the antitype to the Passover event. His new Exodus work is the antitype of that Old Testament pattern, and therefore there's an escalated greatness about his rescue, and we want to delight in that. Um, and as Christian readers, be able to, with eyes wide open, go into the Old Testament to see things like the Passover and read them now in the light of Christ by the kinds of cues that the New Testament authors have provided. Um, now, this, this also requires us to think about um, people typologically. You see uh, Solomon being a type of Christ. Jonah being a type of Christ. These guys are actually identified in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus tells us that something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, he compares himself to be greater than the temple. It helps us see these earlier people or events or institutions um, have a particular role 
in being fulfilled by the future antitype. So Jesus is the true and greater temple. Jesus is the true and greater priest, a greater Jonah, a greater Solomon, the true sacrifice and Passover lamb. When we speak about Jesus in these ways, we're trying to communicate his importance, but we're doing so typologically. We're trying to compare him in some way and, um, and make some more positive and excelling statement of his person and work. One last example that um, that comes to mind, Paul uses this in Romans chapter five, where, where Jesus is a greater Adam, a new and greater Adam. And the, the, um, the escalation is profound because it's in the form of a contrast. By one man, death came into the world. By one man's disobedience, by one man's transgression. And it talks about the many made sinners and all the rest. Condemnation comes. And the escalation could not be greater because you have now a new Adam that is marked by obedience, marked by faithfulness. And by this one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. Uh, so there, there is this um, comparison and correspondence with a headship that Jesus has for the new humanity. Um, Adam is the backdrop so that we can understand the greatness of Christ's work. So a type doesn't necessarily have to mean a type of Christ will in itself be morally exemplary. You might have something like Adam, whose negative work becomes the darker backdrop to highlight the beautiful, merciful work of Jesus. You might have something like the disobedient Jonah, who becomes the backdrop of a greater prophet and word made flesh that now obeys God and stays three dates and three nights in the heart of the earth uh, for the sake of sinners that they might not be judged. So those are those are a few examples. Um, many more exist, of course, but um, I, I give, I think, a, about 100 examples of types across the chapters in the 40 questions book that deal with typology. A hundred examples is a lot. I don't think it's exhaustive, but um, I'm aiming to give a reader, the reader a broad sense of what we are trying to do of seeing about seeing Christ in the old Testament typologically. And piggybacking off of that, I mean, even just hearing you, you summarize these, you can begin to pick up how one might begin to read typologically, but could you give our listeners maybe, maybe a way of learning how to do this on a consistent basis? So like, how do we get into this pattern of reading typologically? Well, I think that I, I would, I would think about the hermeneutic of the New Testament authors that are engaging in typological reading and ask ourselves as readers, what are these guys doing and assuming? Let me see if I can look at the, the, the work itself. You know, how did they get to this particular answer or this particular um, example? What, what, what correspondences would exist? And, and as we study their hermeneutic, I think what we want to do as as biblical interpreters is to imitate their hermeneutic, even though we're not inspired apostles. They are the inspired, authoritative readers of the Old Testament, and if they've given us ways to see Christ in the Old Testament, we're we're on better ground studying their moves and trying to see the Old Testament the way they do than if we sort of say, "Well, I'm not an apostle; I can't do that. I'm going to go my own way." Um, I, I can I can sympathize with those who would say, I'm not sure I could do this. 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would want to put myself in a position to read the Old Testament when I'm not an inspired apostle. And I totally get that. Uh, my friend Jim Hamilton uh, has been a, a biblical and theological mentor for years. And I remember him saying for the first time I ever heard someone say this, that we should imitate the moves of the apostles and their apostolic hermeneutics should be our own. That's a controversial claim, but uh, I'm convinced that the legitimacy of this means we we haven't seen in the New Testament every type in the old that can be noticed. They have not given us an exhaustive uh, catalog of them, in other words. And, and if we were to consider someone like Isaac, you know, Isaac is not brought up in the New Testament with Jesus ever saying something greater than Isaac is here. Or uh, just as Isaac carried the wood up the mountain, I'm going to carry, you know, the cross toward, toward Mount Calvary. Um, and yet, if we think about these Old Testament stories, and Genesis 22 is a great example, where here is a father who has a beloved son, and this son is going to be offered in sacrifice. And at the last minute, he is substitu- a, 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 a ram is substituted. And I think in salvation history, what this does is prepare the way for the day when the son of a father will not have a substitute in his place, but rather he himself will be the actual sacrifice. And in the place of sinners, he will be given like a greater Isaac. Um, you know, another another instance uh, might be somebody like Joseph, where Joseph at the end of Genesis is um, it's not mentioned in the New Testament as a type. You know, just as Joseph was like this, so I am like this, Christ might say. Well, you don't find that language. However, at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph experiences rejection and he is exalted to the highest place in the land under Pharaoh. He provides life and blessing to the people who leave the famine-ridden land and come under his refuge. And these kinds of stories have uh, important significance in their original context, but the greatest context to read a biblical story is in light of the whole canon. And this is a point I really try to emphasize in the book, that the canon is the largest context for any biblical story. And when we read the story of Joseph, we want to recognize, you know, the moral exemplary nature of this man. We want to see the particular plan that uh, the Lord had in mind for him in the Genesis account and how it sets up what happens in Exodus. But we have all of the scripture given to us, preserved by the spirit. And we need to read the Joseph story in light of all of the Bible, not just the next book that comes after it with the Exodus account and the Israelites that are in Goshen. Uh, we need to see where it's all going. So this way, Jesus is a is someone greater than Joseph. Um, so I'm, I'm wanting to look at the New Testament authors, see the kinds of correspondences they notice with these stories, especially characters of, of great covenantal significance. And, uh, and I want to ponder whether there are correspondences to Christ and how these characters, though imperfectly, might be a preview, a kind of preview or movie trailer for the coming person and work of Jesus, the real thing when he arrives. Um, I think we would expect that when Christ has arrived to fulfill the Old Testament, there have been various previews and anticipations that are across the books of the Old Testament that have been put there by God 
all along. And now with the light of the gospel, we can see them more clearly. Uh, that That's also an important point as well, Jimmy. When we think about the apostles, they were able to see the Old Testament with eyes opened by Jesus after the resurrection, after his prolonged teaching uh, to them for weeks and weeks and weeks, so that in the book of Acts, they come to uh, they come to this emboldened play, uh, in, in this emboldened uh, disposition to proclaim Christ from the Psalms and the prophets and the law. And uh, they're, they're proclaiming Christ as he has taught them to see him. And, um, and I think that as, as Bible readers, we want to recognize that they were able to see more clearly what had been there all along, not reading new things into the Old Testament, but rather seeing with all the lights on. And the Old Testament era was, was more like a dimly lit room. All the furniture's in place. The pictures are on the wall. Um, you've, got, you've got the room set up, but not all the lights are on. You can't see everything so clearly. You might look at, in the distance from one corner of the room to the other and you think, you know, is that a coat rack that's up there? Is that a person hunched over? What's on the dresser there? Is that a globe or is that someone's basketball? And yet what you need are all the lights on so that you can see what's been there all along. The resurrection work of Jesus and the hermeneutical moves of the apostles in the New Testament, it turns the lights on in the old, and we can see more clearly what had been dimly lit for so long, and we can rejoice as readers of Christian Scripture 66 books. As you mentioned earlier, both allegory and typology are somewhat controversial, even, even among Bible-believing Christians. And That's right. I would say, and you'd probably agree, allegory is probably even more controversial than typology. So to start us off on our discussion about allegory, what is it? What is allegory? What is allegorical reading of scripture? Yeah, so allegorical reading is a way of reading the text to propose a deeper sense or deeper meaning than what seems to be on the surface. It, it's, to, it's to probe it and to say, this means this most deeply, or it symbolizes something here. And uh, you see allegorical instincts in the early church all the way through church history. There are always pockets of people who have sustained this, even if at different points, um, such as after the, during and after the Enlightenment, uh, certain assumptions about the Bible were strongly questioned. Um, allegorical impulses are, are things that I think you can see in the Old and New Testaments as well a parable or a vision or a particular narrative or a miracle, um, the reader might say, I think there's something going on here more than meets the eye, you know? And that's that's the allegorical impulse. Now, you're right that this is a much more controversial strategy of reading. And, uh, and I think that, and I can really sympathize with why, we have seen so many bad examples of allegorical readings in church history. We, we all know famous examples from Origen or Augustine uh, or other readers where we would read this and think, you know, I can appreciate things about these guys, but I'm not going to follow their track here on, on this text. Um, I, I, I would offer something completely different. What we don't want to do is throw the baby out with the bathwater, right, to borrow that expression. We want to say um, uh, abusive examples of a reading strategy don't necessarily negate the impulse to see a, a deeper or truer sense of what's going on beneath the surface. 
And the assumptions under typology also continue under this allegorical strategy, that there's an inspired scripture, that these two testaments are connected, that there's a united story unfolding from Genesis to Revelation. And, and what we would expect is that sometimes we go back and realize more is going on here in this event than I thought. More is meant by this particular um, number or this particular symbol than, than I realized. In many cases, it's like reading great literature. If you find you know, a great fiction series and, and you start from, from book one and read onward, um, you're going to read it and experience it differently if you start a second time through or a third time through or a fourth time through. We need to develop sensitivity as Bible readers for typological and allegorical strategies. And the only way that's going to happen is by the spiraling around and around as readers through the text immersing ourselves in the biblical author's content so that we can develop instincts like somebody learning a skill. I'll sometimes give this illustration of, uh, of learning to do the Rubik's Cube some years ago. Uh, I wanted to, to learn how to do this, and a nephew of mine had inspired me to do it. And, um, and I wanted to figure out the strategies and the moves and, and the more you learn how this works, there are some initial steps, but some algorithms that are just about muscle memory by the end of it. Uh, certain algorithms that you can actually perform with muscle memory with your eyes closed. To, to use that analogy, I'm trying to say there's a kind of spiritual muscle memory instincts that can lead us into healthy, wise ways of reading scripture, to love God and to love neighbor, as Augustine would put it, um, so that so that we're trying to read faithfully and with the community of the saints, even though allegorical reading um, can can certainly have its its abuses and, and misuses. Now, um, I hasten to add that with typological and allegorical readings, if somebody says, here's what I think this text is doing, even at a deeper level, or here's what I think this text is doing on the canonical scale, they need to offer some argument. They need to offer some textual warrant for why they're positing what they're positing. It, it doesn't help us as Bible readers if somebody proposes something allegorically and we think to ourselves, I have no idea how they would come to that conclusion, other than just their own imagination. And, and that's what can be so off-putting about this reading strategy in scripture. We need to be those who are expecting of ourselves and looking to others for evidence behind any typological or allegorical suggestion of a text. Um, a particular example that I've given of late is, um, is in 1 Samuel 17, where David and Goliath have their standoff. And in this chapter, David reaches into the brook and pulls out five stones um, and is going to he's going to slay Goliath. Uh, the um, stone's going to crush his head. He's going to take Goliath's sword and behead him. And that glorious victory, um, that's the main part of the text, the takeaway of the Davidic king. But there are church interpreters over the years who are interested in elements of the story that might be like a number here or there. And if you read in 1 Samuel 17, David pulls five stones from the brook. If somebody were to say, look, I think these five stones represent, you know, earth, fire, wind, water, and they're just going into um, 
going into different elements of the earth, or if they say it represents Russia and China and North Korea, I think as Bible readers, we want to have enough discernment to realize that is not in any way, shape, or form a legitimate reading of that text. Not at all. But what is interesting is that there are five Philistine cities. There's Gath, and there's Ekron, and I forget some of the others, but Goliath is from Gath, and David pulls five smooth stones and is ready to go and, and, and destroy this giant in the name of the Lord of hosts. If somebody is to make a suggestion about why that number might be significant, making a historical argument, something that's actually geographically true and would connect to the Philistine in question, that would have more merit to it than something that seems completely disconnected from the story. Now, let me just also say five stones might just be five stones and it may mean nothing else. I'm, I'm just trying to say that if, if somebody's going to make a case for seeing a symbolic import or an allegorical significance, a deeper meaning for something, they need to be able to offer something that makes sense in the context, the historical or geographical setting, so that a reader isn't saying, well, you know what? To me, it just means this. And how can you prove me wrong? We need to be able to look at some textual warrant. And if we can't do that, then um, then I'm afraid that, that uh, we're already heading in the wrong direction. Uh, one other example I can give is in Mark 11, when Jesus is on his way to cleanse the temple, he's going to go turn over tables and chairs, and he's going to drive out money seller, money uh, um, exchangers and sellers. And on the way, he passes this fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and he curses it, curses the fig tree. Now, Mark, I think the literary context suggests that Mark intends you to see what Jesus does with the fig tree, and then his entrance into the temple right after that just later that morning when he's been on the way to Jerusalem already. The fig tree is an Old Testament symbol for Jerusalem or Israel. It's the people of God and a fig tree not bearing fruit is an indictment against the nation that's been rejecting Jesus. And he's going to go to the temple and act out a parable of judgment. Now, I'm making a big deal about the fig tree. I'm saying that it suggests something about the people of Israel. I'm seeing a deeper significance to his action that's not a mere hypothetical parable like some of the ones he offers in Luke 15 or in Mark chapter 4. He did this act historically, but it also means something. It means something at a deeper level. And by, by, the, uh, the, and by a virtue of going right into Jerusalem to enter the temple and drive people out, I think we're meant to connect the cursing of the fig tree with that action. And so that's another way of just trying to appeal to some literary context and make an allegorical point about a deeper sense that's going on in the story. I certainly hope you're you're right about the Mark passage because that's how I preached it. <laughs> All right, brother. That's great. Um, I think you're right. <laughs> but anyways, um, you've provided one example. Are there any... I mean, obviously, there are other examples that you could give um, positively, but could you give us a few examples from the Old Testament of an appropriate allegorical reading of a text? Yeah, so in, um, in the Old Testament, I think that you can notice places like Isaiah chapter 5, where there is this prophecy in Isaiah of a vineyard that's going to be trampled. But we have to remember what we're reading. We're reading a prophetic uh, book where 
certain descriptions and figures are going to need to be interpreted. And, and as we read Isaiah 5 in the context of the whole prophet's oracles, we realize that much of Isaiah's words are going to be directed to the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is a southern kingdom prophet. And it turns out that the vineyard image is an image that you see elsewhere in the Old Testament for Israel. When the vineyard is being trampled, that is the Lord's judgment that is being prophesied through that depiction. And as we if we say, you know, this vineyard represents this and the one trampling represents God judging his people through the Babylonians, we are engaging in an allegorical reading of that text. That's what we're doing. We're saying these words are not about an actual vineyard. This is not about actual grapes or plants or, or whatever being trampled. This is actually about something else. This vineyard is about Israel. This judgment that's coming is through Babylon. And so through those figures, Isaiah is uh, prophesying a warning. We see this happening in prophetic visions all over the place. We see this happening in parables. There, there are elements that play on stock imagery and symbols that we need to study and ponder because of a deeper significance to be seen in, in such stories. So that's just that's another example there from Isaiah. Um, one thing that's come up when, when I, I was in seminary and studying and allegory would become a discussion, even, even amongst conservatives, more towards the dispensational leaning or, or a very hard line grammatical historical approach is they, they will say something to the effect that allegorical reading is, is because of Hellenization or, or a copying of, of Greek readings of Greek religious literature. So um, how is the Christian approach to allegory actually different and, and quite different than, than the Hellenistic yeah. approach? Well, that's a, that's a helpful distinction to, to think out loud about. So when we, when we read the uh, Greek myths that are interpreted allegorically, um, you see over and over again a desire by the readers to cover over the, um, the moral transgressions of the gods, some of their outrageous behavior. And this is not apples to apples with the way Yahweh is and works. Um, there, there's no moral blemish we're trying to conceal through allegorical reading. We're, we're instead trying to look at the genre that we are looking at with a prophetic oracle in Isaiah or a parable of Jesus in Mark 4, um, or even the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, where there's more covenantal things going on than at first might seem to be the case. And, and we realize, look, God has a plan unfolding across history through these different biblical authors and texts. And as a reader, I want to immerse myself into that because this God is making himself known, making his purposes understandable. And this progressive revelation is allowing us to track um, patterns and, and things that he is advancing across time and space in history. Um, the, the, uh, the impulses of the Greek myth interpreters are, are different from the Christian reader. In fact, um, we, we can recognize that um, reading certain numbers and significance and symbols predates these uh, particular Greek myths that are interpreted in ways that cover up the indiscretions of the gods. Um, we see in the Old and New Testaments, Yahweh, who is making himself known in various genres through various biblical authors. And our desire as readers needs to be faithful to the literary genre 
we're looking at. So if we're looking at something like the Song of Songs, well, the Song of Songs is filled with poetic imagery. It's more than just about a man and a woman engaging in marital intimacy together. Um, the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. And I'm not trying to just state the obvious. The fact that the Song of Songs is in the Bible means we are bringing to bear on this book with all of its imagery and all of its poetic flourishes, we're bringing to it an, under an understanding about God and his people. Uh, so we're not trying to uh, dilute the Song of Solomon. We're trying to enrich it with a robust theological understanding. And uh, that's going to require some allegorical interpretation. That's going to require us seeing some typological significance to the Song of Songs with Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, so we're trying to be sensitive to the literary genres. We're not trying to hide anything about the Lord. He is holy and just and righteous. And we're trying to try to read faithfully what he's made known uh, through these biblical authors. So moving to uh, more of a direct application, I mean, both Austin and I, my, my co-host, are, are pastors. You're a pastor, and, and several of our listeners, I, I assume, are pastors. I don't know for sure. But in terms of preaching Christ, how, how does reading Scripture allegorically and typology help us to preach Christ from every passage? So I think that we— I think that we grow as interpreters by seeing, by seeing hermeneutics modeled for us more than just reading good hermeneutical resources. There are great hermeneutical resources, but one of the ways we can teach our people to read the Bible is by trying to model faithful biblical interpretation. And if we're correct that typological and allegorical strategies with textual warrant and, and careful, um, and yeah, not, not being hasty or rash, but being careful and thoughtful with the community of the saints and the great tradition to see Christ in the Old Testament is a, a larger course in biblical theology through preaching that way in a local church. We are teaching people over time how to read the Bible. And, and therefore, um, there is a hermeneutical internalization that people will have over time by listening to preaching that exalts Christ in all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God for the glory of Christ. If we if we are preaching in that manner, I think we're able to not only preach the Old Testament with all the lights on, we are following the hermeneutic of the apostles who would go into the Torah or the prophets or the writings and proclaim Christ with many different examples in the book of Acts uh, to illustrate it. Uh, so when we're when we're trying to preach Christ from the Old Testament with our congregation, I think they're able to see what we are doing behind the pulpit as exalting Christ in a way they they can also follow and imitate, even if imperfectly. We're all imperfect interpreters, and yet um, I think it's a thrilling endeavor. I have seen uh, and heard from so many people over the years who 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 um, love the idea of seeing Christ across the pages of scripture. And they say things like, I've never thought about it this way before. I've not seen this story in this manner before. I can see now what you're doing and how you're doing it. And it, it fills their read, their reading of the Bible with a new life. It's like they're renewed in their joy of, of Bible study and devotion. 
I, I think that we don't want to short sell that. If, if we are meant to delight in the word of God and to be devoted readers of the word, typological and allegorical strategies can be a means to that end. Not because we're, we're wanting to, you know, sideline criteria and careful, thoughtful approach. We're, we're wanting to realize, though, that if beholding Christ is good for our hearts, to read the Old Testament in light of Christ encourages us as readers to preach Christ to the congregations from the whole counsel of God, encourages the listeners. And that's because we're exalting Christ. As imperfect preachers and imperfect interpreters, we're holding out Christ and the word of God will not return void. God will use that to encourage his people. And, and I find that a tremendous inspiration for persevering in this task. And, and I think uh, congregations across the board would benefit tremendously um, from that kind of approach with biblical theological impulses to see Christ in all of scripture uh, for the glory of the son. And, uh, and so I think it, there's a benefit corporately and there's benefit individually as Bible readers. So we have been discussing with Mitch Chase about his book, um, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. Mitch, this has been a very encouraging conversation for me. Thank you so much for sharing your time as well as the work you put into this book. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me on. And to our listeners, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.